Let's talk about uh, one of the difficult, complexing subjects in Torah, and that is the idea of sacrifices. The third book of Torah, the book of Vayikra, is all about sacrifices. And this is a bit complexing because there are so many different opinions offered on the subject by the commentaries concerning the, uh, the reasoning or the motivation in, in the bringing of the sacrifices. Rashi quotes in a number of places that the sacrifices are the only mitzvah concerning which God says, this is pleasant to me. And Rashi comments that it is pleasant to me that I instructed and my will was fulfilled. She'amarti v'naseretseni. I said and my will was done. So there are a number of explanations as to what makes this mitzvah different. There are other commandments known as chukim, which we do only because God asked and we are fulfilling his will. In what way is this mitzvah any different than all those other chukim? Every commandment for which we don't see any immediate benefit, any human benefit, which would make it part of the chukim type of commandments, are fulfilled with the reasoning, with the understanding that obedience is a virtue, that fulfilling God's will for its own sake is a virtue, and that our humility in obeying the commandment is a virtue, and therefore, if there was a reason, if God had a reason, if there was an actual benefit to the world or to us, which we are unaware of, which we can't appreciate, it would even make sense that God would keep that from us, not tell us those benefits, so that we have the virtue of doing for him what he wants because he wants it. I mean, there are times when we don't tell our children the reasons, the benefits, the virtues of the things we ask of them. We don't always rationalize, or at least we shouldn't. We shouldn't always try to appeal to the child's willingness. We should sometimes leave it as an instruction to be obeyed so that the child has that experience or that side of his personality or that character trait has an opportunity to develop as well. We say to our children, this is the right thing to do. Do it because it's right. What are the benefits? What if there aren't any benefits? What if right is just right? Is that not reason enough to do it? And that's a very important part of growing up, of maturing, of, of becoming a mensch. 
But concerning the sacrifices, the carbon, it seems that there is an additional quality here where we shouldn't do the, the sacrifices, we shouldn't bring the sacrifices even for the benefit derived from obedience. In other words, even the reason that justifies all the other chukim, not that we explain what the chayk or the commandment is about, but we explain the virtue of not needing justification or rationalization, that there is a benefit and a virtue in that alone, in not knowing why and doing it anyway. Even that benefit should be put aside, should not be our consideration when we do the sacrifices. With the sacrifices, it should be simply because it's what gives God pleasure. Which leads us to a very fundamental issue where sacrifices might seem to be of secondary importance because we don't have sacrifices today. Yet an entire book of Torah is devoted to it with all the graphic details of the various parts of the kidney, the liver, the sections, the portions, the fats. All of this must be very significant and we need to understand it in its proper light in order to appreciate the fact that an entire book of Torah is devoted to it. Now here's how fundamental, here's how basic the issue really is. There's a Midrash, which is one of the building blocks, one of the pillars of Chabad philosophy. The Midrash says that God created the world because Nisave HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be He, desired a dwelling place in the lowest world. This idea that God wants a dwelling place in the lower world is the ultimate explanation or insight into the purpose of creation. What is it that God wants? He wants a dwelling place. He wants the lowest of all worlds to become the most godly of all worlds. So that he, his essence, can be comfortable in the lowest world. But isn't it a strange term? Isn't it a strange expression for the Midrash to use? God desired, nisave. God has a desire for a dwelling place in the lowest world. Why not say God wanted? Why not say God needed? Why not say God planned a dwelling place in the lower world? What is the meaning? What sense does it make to use the word desire in connection with God's purpose of creation. Now, superficially, at first glance, we could get the impression that the Midrash is telling us that God desired a dwelling place in the lower world because he doesn't really need it. It's a desire. As if 
to see that uh, God could get along fine without it. It's not that he really needs it, but he desires it. On closer examination, of course, this can't be acceptable. It may be true of a human being that a human being can desire things he doesn't really need. In fact, a human being can desire things he doesn't even desire. We can be crazy. We can be confused. We can convince ourselves that we want things that we don't really want. We can get into these moods where we desire things that are basically undesirable even to ourselves. And, of course, the proof of it is that we've all had the experience of where we desired something very much, and then something came along, something happened, and in a moment, it changed. The same thing, that which we had desired yesterday, we despise today. Despise means we see no reason to desire it. There doesn't seem any justification for it. It's completely irrelevant to our lives. It's insignificant. It's not worthy of desire. But that's the human condition. We certainly can't say of God that God desires something frivolously, that he doesn't really need it, it's not really important, but he desires it. Well, if that's not the explanation, then how do we explain the use of the term What does it mean, God desires? Hasidus explains at great length that if we're going to look for a motivation, if we're going to try to understand what makes God create a world, what makes God create, why create? There's an explanation offered. God creates because he's a creator. Because he is capable of creation, because he has the talent, he has to express that talent, and so he creates. What would it be like for God to have talents that don't get expressed, that don't get used? Human beings can have untapped resources, untapped abilities, because for some reason or another, we don't know ourselves well enough or we can't get around to developing our talents or to using our talents. We get frustrated, we get distracted. But since God is perfect, why would he not express or actualize a talent that he has? The problem with this explanation is that it implies that there is some kind of a rule, a rule of nature, that forces God to create. The human being who has a a great talent and nothing gets in his way, he's not distracted, the talent demands expression. person has a feel for music, he needs to express it. If he doesn't express it, he is repressing, he's harming himself in some way because the potential needs expression. 
We certainly can't say that God was governed by this rule that every potential must be expressed. The basic principle is that we're asking what made God create the world while at the very same time we realize that nothing could make God create the world. Because if there was any compelling reason, if there was anything that made him create the world, then he is not God. There is something greater than him. There is a force that compels him. Then that force is the original, absolute, and true existence. So God being God cannot possibly be motivated by something outside of himself, something besides himself, because there is nothing besides him. Certainly before creation. So here's a very important principle in, in theology and in understanding godliness, and that is there cannot be a virtue, something of importance, something of significance that is outside of God, and God was compelled to create in order to acquire that virtue or that benefit or that significant something. The motivation for creation has to come from him, not from something outside of him, which means that God's interest in creating the world can't be coming from the world, from the creation. It's not that there was something in the creation that could complete God. It's not that creation held some value or some importance or some virtue without which God is incomplete. So no matter how important, no matter how significant, no matter how compelling creation might appear, like God needed someone to be good to, or God had to actualize his potential, or in this world there is freedom of choice, and that's very significant and important, and so on. All of these explanations come after the fact. That's not what made God create the world. That's part of the creation itself. So you're describing the creation. You're not explaining what made God create. And that's why Hasidus repeats over and over again, generation after generation, every Rebbe, emphasize the fact that the world is completely insignificant and non-existent in God's experience. From God's perspective, the world is as if it were not. And that's why at the beginning of creation, before Adam and Eve, the Medrash says, the earth was God's main domain. God's presence was primarily on earth. And the question, of course, is, what about earth made God present here? There was nothing going on. Now, of course, we can talk about the beauty of nature and the innocence of nature, but that's a far cry from godliness. 
There was no one to serve God. There was no one to relate to God. There was no one to do godly things. In what way could the world possibly have been expressing the essence of God? And the Rebbe offers this explanation. One of the things that we know about God's essence is that all motivation begins within him. It does not come from the outside. Now, when there is a Moses running around, when there is a people of Israel, children of Israel, who are following commandments, perfectly or imperfectly, whatever the case may be, when God is in contact and conversation with the prophets, he's pleased with the Jewish people, he's upset with the Jewish people, he's angry at other nations, He's rewarding the other nations. There's all sorts of stuff going on. All that activity may distract us from one of the fundamental truths about God's essence. And that is that God created the world because he is God, not because there is something about the world that demands creating and when was this most obvious? When was this most revealed? When did creation reflect the fact that this is God's idea? It's not about us, and it's not about me, and it's not about the creation. It's about the Creator. When was that most obvious and most evident? Before there was Adam and Eve. Before there were any distracting features before there was anything we could mistakenly consider the reason or the purpose of creation. In the beginning, when there was no one, the creation spoke very loudly of the fact that this is God's idea because there's nothing else going on. The only thing that can be said about creation is that God created it. Must be his idea. Must be something that he wants, not that there is something in creation, but there is something about God. And that's obvious because there is nothing else that could possibly justify the creation. So if the, if the entire universe was just one stone, what would we say of this? What would it make us think? only of the Creator, because there isn't much to say about creation. So this fact that the act of creation originates within God, and it is not a reaction on God's part to the benefits or the virtues of the created being, of the created world, that fact was most obvious on the first few days of creation. But it hasn't changed. It's still true. So now we have a very interesting, seemingly contradictory set of truths. On the one hand, we are told that God desires a dwelling place in the lower world. This is the vast eternal plan. This is what, what motivates everything. This is why everything exists. This is what it's all about. God desires the lower world to have a dwelling place in the lower world, a home 
On the other hand, we say, the world is nothing. Creation is nothing. There is only God. And all that exists, including the heavenly angels and the heavenly chambers and the, and, and the supernal worlds, etc., it's all as nothing to God. So, which is it? Is this world a great desire with a great vast eternal plan? Or is it nothing? Meaningless. Both things are true. There is nothing meaningful about the world that would make God create it. But there is something about God. There's something about him for which he creates the world. How do we describe? How do we describe an internal, voluntary, compelling behavior? We don't have too many examples of this. Because in our experience, when we desire something, it's because that something is desirable. In fact, Let's understand human desire. The person who needs a car desires to have a car. But that desire is not really a pure desire. It's a need. It's a functional thing. A car has a functional purpose. If you need to get downtown, you have to have a car. You have to have some means of transportation. Uh, even if the need for the car or the desire for the car is not for its functional transportational services, but because of the status that it gives. You have to drive a certain kind of car in your profession or in your social status, in your social uh, ambitions. You have to give that impression. You have to have that, that look. So there is something about the car that compels you. It's not just your desire. It's the car's imposition. It imposes itself on you and says, you have to have me. You have to have one of me. And that can be said of almost all human desire. God created the world, and in the world he created things that are pleasant or desirable. Their function is to give pleasure, like dessert. You don't really need it. You never really need it. If you're still hungry, it's not dessert. It's still part of your meal. Dessert means you're not hungry. You don't need to eat anymore. And now you're going to eat something purely for the pleasure of it. That's a desire. But bread and butter, meat and potatoes, this is not a desire. This is a staple. This is life. This you need. It demands that you eat it. But then the same is true even with the dessert. It doesn't demand that you eat it for survival, but it demands that you eat it because of how pleasant it is, how much pleasure it gives. So when do we experience a true desire? A true desire would mean 
nobody makes me want this. I'm not being teased. I'm not being provoked. It's me, voluntarily, of my own, from within myself, for reasons that begin in me and not in the object of my desire. I have the desire for something. And it's all about me. It's only about me. When a person's desires, the things that the person desires, are denied, are withheld, the child who says, I need an ice cream, and the parents say, no, you can't have one. The child who says, I want to go play uh, up on the roof, and the parents say, no, you can't, it's too dangerous. And the child says, I want to go on a trip, and it's, no, it's too expensive. There are good reasons that even a child could appreciate. What's dangerous should be avoided. What's too expensive can't be afforded. What's unhealthy should not be indulged in. A child can understand that. But if you say to the child, no, you can't have an ice cream because it's too much sugar, and no, you can't go on a trip because that's too much money, and no, you can't play in traffic because that's too dangerous, the child understands why he doesn't have the ice cream or the trip, but at the same time, the child is hurt because a little part of that desire for the ice cream has nothing to do with the ice cream. It's not really about the ice cream. It's about myself. I'm asserting myself. I have a desire because I am alive, because I am me, and I desire. Right now I'm desiring an ice cream. But that's just a detail. If it's not the ice cream, then give me something else. But satisfy me the me in the equation. I am. I am real. I have desire because I'm alive, because I breathe. So maybe I can't have the ice cream. I can understand that. And maybe we can't afford to go on a trip. I can understand that too. But yet, I'm feeling like the me is being denied. Three no's in a row. I'm starting to feel like I'm being ignored. It's not about the ice cream. It's not about the trip. It's not about the car. So what is a true desire? A true desire means an expression of my existence, of my reality, of the fact that I live. That's desire. The need for the car actually denies my significance. If something makes me need it, then its significance is dominant, not my significance. So the fact that I need a car humbles me. I'm dependent on the car. But my desire to have a certain color car, my desire to have a certain style of car, that's me. That's just me. There's the expression in Hebrew, Altam voreach, ein lehisvakeach. You don't debate taste and style. 
Why can't we argue about which car is the most tasteful, which car is the most appealing? We can't argue that because, because there's no reality to that. The taste and the appeal, the look, is an expression of the viewer. Beauty is in the eyes of the beholder because there is no beauty besides the eyes of the beholder. The purpose of taste is to express the person, not to describe the object. So there is no way of saying this design, this look in a car is more appealing. It's not more appealing. The whole purpose of style is to satisfy the reality, the significance, the importance of the buyer, not of the car. So the seats, the comfort, the speed, the size of the engine, these are things that impose themselves on the buyer. You need a bigger car that humbles you. But the fact that you like it to look a certain way, that expresses you. This is about you, not about anything else. So what is true desire? True desire means when the object of my desire doesn't have something I need and therefore it compels me to desire it. True desire means there is something about me. This is how I work. This is how I see things. This is what I am. And what I am will express itself in this kind of a style, in this kind of an object, in this kind of a creation. But it's not about the created being. It's about me. In other words, that part of desire that I cannot ignore because it's me, that is the true essence of desire. The size of the car we can negotiate. There's always a way around it. You need a big truck because you have to pick up large objects. Well, you can always rent a truck for that. You don't have to buy it. You can always work your way around a need. Your needs can change. Your job can change. Someone else can do it for you if it's just a practical need. A true desire is something you can't not feel. You can't not be that way. So when we say that God had a desire to create the world, we're not saying he doesn't really need it. We're saying the exact opposite. We're saying that for God to create is an essential part of being God. Not because the creation is important, but because there's something about God, within God, that compels him to have a dwelling place in the lower world. And what makes that obvious? How do we appreciate this fully? By realizing how insignificant the creation is. 
the more we realize that the world can't possibly offer God anything, the more we realize how significant creation is. Doesn't this make any sense? You might think, again, superficially, at first glance, if we are to be convinced that the creation is not important, that there's nothing in this world that makes it necessary. I have fatalistic people who think, so what if the world blew up? So what if there was a Big Bang that took the world out of existence instead of bringing it into existence? So what? So there won't be a world. So nothing will exist. What would be wrong with that? What's the loss? So if we talk about how insignificant the universe is, how insignificant existence is, how irrelevant it is, if it exists, it exists. If it didn't, then it wouldn't. And who would care? From this kind of thinking, we might come to the conclusion that the world really doesn't need to be. And yet the exact opposite is true. The more we realize how insignificant the world is, the more we realize how there is no real reason for the world to be, that there is no function that the world serves, that existence, creation, the universe serves. There is no function that would make the universe's existence necessary. It isn't necessary. As the philosophers say, creation is a possible existence, not a necessary existence. It exists because it was created, not because it was needed. But the more we realize this, the better we understand this, the more we see the godliness of creation. In other words, the more we see the creator rather than the creation. I'll use this example. I'm not sure it's exactly appropriate, but it might be useful. In the olden days when a king had supreme power, he would appoint ministers. He would choose. He would surround himself with advisors and ministers, with, with wise men, who would help him govern and run the country. They were chosen on the basis of their knowledge, strength of character, worldly experience. They had what it takes to be ministers, to minister to the country or to the king. That makes sense. But imagine if a king, on a whim for personal reasons, appoints a simpleton who somehow appeals to the king. His innocence, his simplicity appeals to the king. And on a whim, he appoints the simpleton minister of the entire country. When we see a minister who has knowledge, who has wisdom, who has worldly experience, who is a diplomat, 
we are impressed with the talents that this man has, and we feel that the king is lucky to have such great ministers. Country is lucky to have such great ministers. But when we see the minister, the prime minister, the simpleton, what comes to mind? What does the simpleton prime minister make us think? How great ministers are? What kind of talents it takes to be a minister? The simpleton brings only one thing to mind. A king is a very powerful individual. A king can do anything. A king can make a prime minister out of a simpleton. And although that makes no sense whatsoever, and although we don't see how this could possibly work, and what kind of a minister is this simpleton going to be, it doesn't matter. We are keenly aware that the king is very powerful and that the king must like this simpleton a lot. It's not exactly a good analogy because the simpleton will not serve the purpose. The simpleton will not provide the functions, the, the, the services of a minister. Whereas in creation, the world does do what it's supposed to do. The question, though, is how did a simpleton become a minister? How does a physical universe that has no virtues whatsoever, it's a simpleton, how does such a world get to be the vast eternal plan in God's thoughts, in God's desire? Well, the only way to describe that, the only word to use that would make any sense at all is to say it was a desire. If you call it a plan, people will be confused. doesn't seem like much of a plan. If you call it a need, you might mistakenly think that the world has something on its own that God needs. How do you describe that original, voluntary, expression of self. We call it a desire. And that's why our desires, at their very heart, at their very essence, don't make any sense. Don't make any sense. When married people are distracted from each other with desires, with attraction to others, it's not because the others have something special. It's because the me, the reality of my existence, is expressed in the fact that I can desire something that doesn't impose itself on me. I have to have a wife. I have to have a family. I have to have a home. Now I'm going to prove that I don't need any of those things, and I can just be me. That's a desire. Now, with the human being, humility, truth, 
dictates that the desires that we have are best ignored in favor of a greater or more important desire. The fact that my desire establishes the reality of my existence, that that's what desire means. The fact that this expresses my validity, my significance, my reality, humility dictates that I surrender all of that because my reality is not the truth. Because the fact of my existence is not self-justified. In other words, when I express my true desire, I am acting like God. I am saying, in effect, I am saying, my existence is real. Or, my existence is original. The reality of me, the fact that I am, begins with me. And that's why it's significant. And of course, that's not true. My reality does not begin with me. The significance of the fact that I am does not come from within me. It's like the reason I have a desire, a true desire, is because I was created in God's image, not because I am essentially that way. It's not that the created being, the human being, has a desire similar to God's desire. God's desire is original. Ours comes from outside of ourselves. Even the desire that is a true desire, I inherit this. It's not my own. I did not originate this. So even those things that I want for no reason at all, simply because I am, is only a copy it's only an image of the true desire, which is, of course, in God. So when I do something only because I desire it, that's playing God. That is the flip side, the unholy side of this godly reality. That within God, desire is the ultimate truth, the fact that God desires creation means that this is really him, that the creation is as significant as he is because it is about him and not about itself, not about creation itself. That's a godly reality. Now, the flip side of that is when something other than God behaves that way. So when I indulge, when I give significance to my desire, pure desire, then I have turned myself into an idol. I imagine myself God. Perhaps that's the evil, the wickedness, the unholiness that describes a Amalek. There are other nations like the Canaanites, for example, or the Philistines, 
whose unholiness consisted of the fact that they were a reflection of a divine attribute. God has love, and they believed that they were the embodiment of love, of kindness. But God's love is godly, their love is not. But they turned their own love into an idol. An idol meaning when you take a divine attribute, you take some aspect of God and you attribute it to yourself and you claim to have that same quality or that same attribute as does God and that means you've made God out of yourself. But Amalek, Amalek didn't take a particular virtue like love or compassion or strength. He took this very essential quality called desire. I am I am, this is me, which in God is absolute truth and in the human being, absolute evil. And that's why we say a mensch, who is a real decent human being, somebody who will never do something strictly because he feels like it, simply because it proclaims his reality to the world, that's not menschlich, because a human being, in order to be a mensch, has to recognize where he belongs. We know where we fit. We know where we belong, what our role is, what our place is, and we do it well. Then we're a mensch. But if we start playing God, of course we're not going to be a mensch. Let's go back to sacrifices for a moment. The verse says, concerning sacrifices, it introduces the whole subject with these words. When a person wants to bring a sacrifice from among you, which is kind of a clumsy sentence, it should say a person among you who wants to bring a sacrifice. So Hasidus explains... What it means is this. Adam ki yakriv, when a person wants to get closer to God, he has to bring a sacrifice from among you. In other words, from himself. The sacrifice is not just the animal. It's the person. If you want to get closer to God, you have to give to God some part of yourself. It's got to come from within you. Just having a goat killed doesn't get you closer to God. Which means in simple terms that if you want to get closer to God, you want to repent your sin, you want forgiveness for your sin, you have to bring yourself closer, not just the goat. As part of that coming closer, as part of giving away, giving yourself to God, you give part of your wealth. And of course, in... in in the early days, wealth was a goat or a lamb or a cow. But if you don't bring yourself, if you don't give God a part of yourself, you give only the goat, then it's meaningless. But Hasidus takes it a step deeper. Which part of yourself? What does it mean, yourself? 
Bring yourself closer to God. What is this self? The self means your desire. When do we really see yourself? Not when you need a car. Not when you need to have food. That's not yourself. That's cars and food. When do we see yourself? When you desire something which has no purpose, which has no virtue of its own. It only serves to express your desire. It by itself is meaningless and insignificant. That desire, that's you. And when you give that to God, now you're getting closer to him. So here's what sacrifices means. The sacrifice means God desires creation. God desires a relationship with you and with the world and with his creation because that's him, because he desired it. It's not about the creation and it's not about you. It's about him. How do you get closer to him? by not pulling in the opposite direction and having your own desire which makes you, you, and not him. When you give that to God, then you become part of his desire. Then you are closer. And that's why the Torah begins in describing the whole book, the third book of Torah, which is going to tell us all about the sacrifices. How does it all begin? It begins with, and God called to Moshe. How do we get closer to God? Because we want to be spiritual? Out of a desire to be higher? Out of a desire to fulfill some spiritual thirst that we might have? That doesn't get you closer to God. It gets you closer to the spiritual needs of your soul. It may, in fact, even get you further away from God. Throughout history, there have been famous people who were extremely spiritual and extremely evil. What does it mean to get closer to God? The only way we could get closer to God is if for some inexplicable reason God desires us inexplicably, not because we have something to offer him, not because we have some virtue that he doesn't have and he wants to acquire it through us, but because for some inexplicable reason, unimaginable, God desires us. And it's not that someday we will discover the reason. It's not that someday we will realize how important and significant we really are, which is why God came looking for us. We didn't exist. How significant could we be? And yet, in spite of all this insignificance, it is one of these things about the infinity of God that he can desire things that we can see no reason for simply because he is God. If we can recognize that, if we can relate to that, if we can bring ourselves closer to that,
then we are responding to his desire. Not to our need, not to our desire, but to his desire. And that's why the book of sacrifices, the third book of Torah, has to begin with the word Vayikra, God called to us through Moshe. God has to call us. God has to desire us. Otherwise, there is no plan. There is no relationship. There is no closeness. Which means it's about him. It is about him. That's how we can get closer. But if God doesn't call, if God does not initiate this relationship, just as if God did not initiate creation, then there is nothing. There truly is nothing. And that's why there's a small aleph in the word vayikra. And all the commentaries say that it's about humility. Is because Moshe felt humble. Why here? Why now? Why didn't Moshe feel humble when he went up the mountain to receive the Torah? Why didn't he feel humble when, when, when he, God appeared to him in the burning bush? Here, here, when God calls to him to come closer, Moshe experiences this humility that makes the Aleph shrink. Because in getting closer to God, you have to experience that humility. We have to experience these two realities. On the one hand, all of creation has nothing to offer God. There is nothing significant, valuable, or virtuous about the physical being. Now, we're not talking about our godly soul, which is a little piece of God. We're talking about the physical creation. So the physical creation, the human part of us, has nothing. And the more we realize this, the more grateful we are that God initiates this relationship for with no thanks to us. And in that gratitude, we are humbled. And in that humility, we allow God to be himself. We see God as God, not as an object of our desire, not as a source of the things we need, not as the big caretaker, the great grandfather in heaven. God as God is. It really is about him. And then everything we do becomes a sacrifice. Not that we're giving up a lot. Sacrifice meaning everything we own, everything we do, gets elevated to the status of a carbon, meaning closeness, closer to God. Closer to God means in recognition of the fact that it's about him and not about us or it. So we have houses, we have cars, we have furniture, we have clothing, we have wealth, we have ownings. What is it all about? It's all about him. And that's how we take this world and turn it into a dwelling place for God. Because we are capable of seeing past our own desires and not treating it as God and letting God be God, because all of creation is his desire, and that means that he couldn't have it any other way.
And for that, we worship him. Shalom Aleichem. How are you? You know, I do a lot of talking, a lot of Zooming, many classes, many subjects, but that's all formal stuff. Hopefully good stuff, but formal. We also have a Wednesday night meeting that's more informal and kind of um, Hamish. If you want to join us for that kind of an event, um, interactive, time for questions and so on. If you want to join us for this side of conversation, click on the link below and join us every Wednesday night at nine o'clock. Well, maybe not every Wednesday night, but we try to make it every Wednesday night at nine o'clock a more informal chat, which uh, can be more enjoyable at times than the formal stuff. So check it out. Click on the link and join us. Try it. You'll like it. <laughs>